You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pure Books. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. Lou, you're editing one of the premier cutting-edge science fiction imprints that's out there right now, but you don't come from a background that would suggest that final destination. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got from where you were to where you are. Well, thank you for the compliment, first of all. And yes, it's been an interesting road from there to here. I did not come up necessarily through the traditional publishing route. Um, I started out in Los Angeles in 1995. Uh, I was working as a production assistant on mostly rap music videos and infomercials. And that dried up. And I realized I wasn't good at much else. And my father had said, you know, you're almost too old to go to law school. But I'll give you a plane ticket home, and you can you can enroll in law school. And I went on a three-hour jog trying to figure out what in the hell I could do that wasn't law school. And at the time, the only real media connections I had outside of the PA work was that I knew a great many people who wrote for Doctor Who books just from chatting with them online. And I went to Sci-Fi Universe, the, the magazine that no longer exists that was owned by Larry Flint. It was his one non-porn mag. And I pitched them on a Doctor Who books retrospective, and they told me that they could care less, but that there was a convention down in Irvine, California, and if I would, they had no desire to go, and if I would cover it for them, I could write that article. At that Doctor Who convention, I met Jean-Marc Lefissier, who was then attached to the 1996 Fox TV Doctor Who co-production with the BBC. He recommended me, on the strength of our one interview, to Titan Publishings, who were looking for... Uh, a man in Los Angeles to help them launch a new Star Trek magazine that was going to be the first of its kind. Uh, historically, the licensed magazines were, you know, 20 pages of advertisements and then an interview with Klingon number three. And Titan wanted to do a 120-page magazine that would have, oh, 200 photos and maybe 50 quality pieces per issue. And they needed someone to liaison with Paramount, who were completely unprepared for that kind of a, an undertaking. And so I signed on with Titan and ended up writing about 500 articles across five years for uh, mostly their licensed magazines, Star Trek Monthly, Babylon 5 Monthly, etc. During that time, I also wrote screenplays, had them bought but not produced, uh, did have a standing invitation to pitch at Star Trek for a while, and was briefly repped by CAA. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> all of which I have nothing to show for except a stack of old magazines. But in 2000, an old friend slash ex-girlfriend was starting up a, a dot-com that was first to market on online publishing. Uh, essentially, the, the issues that Google Print and Amazon's Look Inside the Book and all of these online initiatives are dealing with now, we dealt with back in 2000. And she wanted someone that knew media to tell them what to put on this wonderful technology they built. So she convinced me to come up to San Francisco. And for one glorious year, we rode the end of the bubble up and down. We had 40,000 users within a couple months. Uh, we had 
online books from all of the major houses. This is bookface.com? Yes, bookface.com. That's right. And uh, I'm flattered you remember this. And it, uh, it, was, it was, you know, when that went down in flames, we had operated on the assumption that science fiction uh, writers would be more prone to new technologies than, than other writers. So although we had books in all categories, we had a preponderance of science fiction. So I parlayed that into a, an anthology and then into several freelance anthologies, the first major one of which was Live Without a Net. And on the strength of that, uh, I got something of a name in the industry, which led to the job at Pyre. Prometheus, uh, they're a longtime science nature publisher. Their, their sister company is the... Uh, Center for Inquiry that publishes the Skeptical Inquirer and Skeptic Magazine. Right, yes. Longtime friends of Carl Sagan and the late Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And they wanted to get into the fiction space and were advised by, I think, Barnes & Noble to pick a niche not to do general fiction and thought that there was, you know, some connection between science and science fiction. Imagine that. <laughs> and, and hired me. And that was 2004. And here we are. Well, in in that time, you guys you racked up quite a, a, a roster of of writers, and it was interesting. One of the things that uh, you know, we see a lot of uh, anthologies come across the transom in, in the trade, and one of the things that attracted me to to Live Without a Net was though it had a lot of authors that you would expect to find in such an anthology. It also had John Meany, and I thought, wow, anybody who picks John Meany is pretty much on the ball and, and all okay with me. I Thank you. I think John's a genius. Um, we, we've done well by John, but the, the he hasn't hit the level of, of recognition over here that he deserves. And I think when his Bantam book comes out in February, Bone Song, that's when people in America are really going to wake up to this genius who's been operating across the pond and that's still largely under the radar. And they'll be able to get fine hardcover domestic editions of his books from you, which is oh, yeah. really great. They're beautiful editions. Thank you. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you've gone, built up your roster. You, you have an interesting combination of established authors like Mike Resnick, people who have been in the business for a bazillion years, and, and some new authors. Uh, tell, how do you um, get out there, find these authors, and get them away from you know, maybe bigger publishers? And, and I, I have to ask, how did John Meany get away from you? <laughs> well, Meany, and, and I want to I say, first of all, that I, I'm, I'm very... Uh, I'm uncomfortable with the term get them away from mm-hmm. because I actually I like it when an author is published at more than one house because mm-hmm. you have twice the publicity campaign behind them. Sure, and sure. I'm very, very happy that Bantam has Meany right now. Um, John and I have discussed doing other books, but I wanted I actually was not involved in the bidding at Bone Song at all. Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't go after that one because I felt like at the time we still had some more Meany to put out. And I felt like he would benefit from by having a second publisher, and then after that comes out, I can come back. Um, but he, Meany, I just I read Paradox in 2001, maybe, and just thought it was the most brilliant thing I'd ever read, and could not understand why it wasn't published over here. And spent several years uh, accosting editors and saying, "Why, why are you not publishing John Meany in America?" I remember reading Paradox myself. And thinking it was just incredible. You know, it it 
it sort of ties in with Live Without a Net. And, and my opinions in 2001 are not necessarily my opinions in 2007, soon to be 2008. But at the time, and, and I'm aware this is a gross generalization, I felt like a lot of what I was seeing from American writers was still that post-cyberpunk, near-future, noir, jacked-in, uploaded, wired world. And what was coming out of Britain, which you know we later called the new space opera, was just so expansive and imaginative and uplifting and, and had all of that sense of wonder, which is what got you reading science fiction as a 12-year-old to begin with. And Mimi's new Lapirian sequence, the Paradox Context Resolution, I think is one of the most imaginative and important science fiction works written since Dune. You know, it certainly has the, that level of world building, that level of imagination, and, it, and that level of uniqueness. And, and the prose, too. I think one of the things that I think about Frank Herbert we forget about when, uh, until we read some of the later um, revisitations to the planet with uh, Kevin J. Anderson and uh, Brian Herbert. It, it, well, those are fine books. I think that the... Herbert's prose was very poetic, and I feel that uh, uh, Meany's prose is poetic in the same way. It really just immerses you in that world. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, that he, he conjures up the idea that you are reading something from someone who does not speak the language that you speak. And I love his device of the tricorn letters that rotate the way that language itself has changed. Yes, yeah. The words are displayed holographically, and their color and their speed of rotation contains additional meanings apart from their syntax. It's a really beautiful concept, and quite visual, obviously. And it's, it's so well-structured. I mean, you have the, the situation in the first book where uh, in, the, in the lower echelons, the, the way the lower class live deep, deep down in the earth, they have, uh, instead of doors, they have wall, they have uh, hangings, just curtain hangings over the doors and windows. And it's not until later in the book when the child, when Tom gets uh, upwardly mobile in society that you find out that the upper class uses these impermeable membranes that you just walk through. And he never says it, but you realize that the wall hangings are the poor man's emulation of the expensive membranes that the upper class has. And it's just that level of background world building that I, I'm just in awe of. Well, tell us about some of your uh, more recent acquisitions and things that are that you've just uh, recently done. For example, a, f a fast forward, a new a series that looks to be pretty important. Thank you. I hope that you're correct. Uh, I'm just I'm putting fast forward two together now. I have a fabulous story from Jack Skillingstead in that, from Nancy Kress, Paul McCauley, and Paul Cornell, the Doctor Who, the Hugo nominated Doctor Who scribe. His stuff is really, really good. Those Doctor Who episodes are just really emotionally powerful, I think, which is not what you expect to find in a Doctor Who episode. Well, the, the, the two-parter he wrote, Human Nature and Family of Blood, Human Nature is, ba is based on his novel of the same name, Human Nature. And um, you know, he, he wrote for the now-defunct Virgin Doctor Who line for a while. And that's where he cut his teeth, although he's been writing for British television as long as he's been writing media tie-in books. And Human Nature was one of the best Doctor Who novels I've read. And so I was thrilled to find out that he was adapting it. Um, I think it's probably the best Doctor, Doctor Who episode, if that makes sense. It might not be the best episode of Doctor Who ever written, although it's close if it isn't. But it's definitely the best Doctor episode ever written. 
An interesting distinction. So let's talk a little bit more about Fast Forward. When, when you came up with this idea, there's lots of science fiction anthologies out there, annual anthologies. What made you decide but to do this? There were not a lot of original science fiction anthologies, and there were not a lot of science fiction anthologies. I, I remember, you know, every year Gardner does his marvelous year in summation. And every year he talks about all of the new markets, and every year he bemoans the fact that most of what they seem to publish in his eyes are either slipstream or fantasy. And every year the same tired arguments about the death of science, short fiction come out, and the same arguments about the shrinking of the, or the decline of the digest magazines. And I was sitting around thinking about posting a response to this, and I thought rather than just be one more voice you know, throwing my two cents in, why not actively do something about it? And so that's when Fast Forward was born, the idea of being an all-original anthology of only science fiction, no, no fantasy, no slipstream, only science fiction, but everything that science fiction can be, uh, with both, as we've said before, with both an eye toward the past with great writers from our history like Mike Resnick and also an eye toward the future with some cutting-edge new voices like the aforementioned Paul Cornell. Tell me a little bit. You must get a lot of submissions over the transom. Could you talk to me a little bit about what somebody who's sending something you, to you should have in the manuscript, maybe the cover letter? How do we get something published by Pierre? Pyre. Oh, <laughs> I'm laughing because you're actually pronouncing it correctly. Uh, we don't. It, it's, um, the Greek would be Pierre. Uh, but since it isn't a word in English, we decided we'd pronounce it Pyre just because it's it sounds a little better, pyre like fire. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm fine with people saying pyre if they want to, to feel erudite. Um, <laughs> no, the, the way, unfortunately, we've, we've joined every, nearly every other publisher that we don't take unsolicited manuscripts. Uh, we only accept through agents. And, and the reason for that is that if you do take unsolicited manuscripts, you get a thousand a week, and it's like sifting through a needle in a haystack the size of the Empire State Building to find one that's good. So you just have to have that level of of uh, discernment or, 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 or that first vetting that an agent represents. Uh, and I prefer to receive cover letters before the manuscript because I'm, you know, we're not tour. We're not publishing 100 books a year. We're publishing 19 to 20 books a year. And I'm very, very specific on the kind of book I'm looking to publish. You know, although we publish in all subgenres, uh, there's very, I think there is very definitely a pyre book. You know, I've, I've said to people before, this is a good book, but it is not a pyre book. And uh, as a result, you know, I, I, I can do a lot of, I can save a lot of time on everyone's part from a good cover letter, which is a cover letter that tells me exactly what the book is and what it's about in about three paragraphs. Um, as for what I'm actually looking for... What is a pyre book? <laughs> That's the question. And I knew when I said that that, that would be the question. Um, you know, it's a very delicate balance because uh, we are publishing recognizable traditional science fiction and fantasy that science fiction and fantasy readers would want to read. At the same time, there is an attempt to dial the level of the prose, like we talked about with John Meany, up a notch. But you have to be careful when you say this, because what happens is 
I get a lot of submissions that are attempts at literary SF that have dialed the experimentation or uh, the stylistic idiosyncrasies up so high that there's maybe five people on earth who would enjoy the manuscript. And at the same time, uh, something that's just, you know, shot right down the middle of commercial fiction with all of its oh, attendant uh, weaknesses isn't going to be of interest either. And so it's very hard to find something that's got good plotting, a good story first and foremost, that is um, absolutely a fun commercial read, but of a higher order. If that makes sense. Now, you've been working a lot with uh, the Monkey Brain people. They have your uh, anthology projections. Yes, they do. And, and I, I'm wondering uh, what other work you're doing. How does that? How do your minders at Prometheus view such uh, excursions out of the realm of uh, Pyre? I mean, why don't these things come out through Pyre? I, I'm curious about the, some of the politics of publishing. Well, I'm also working with Solaris. We're, we have an anthology coming out uh, in June or July of 2008 called Sideways in Crime, which is an alternate history mystery anthology. And uh, my attempt to carve out a new sub-sub-genre. Now, um, but, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, well it, it's interesting. You talk about Solaris. We have Orbit starting up. We have uh, Pyre starting up. Why do you think there's such a, a, a market for, you know, science fiction startups when we're constantly told that science fiction is dying, publishing is dying, yet we have three pretty new, and four if you count Monkey Brain, um, pretty big deal publishers going after science fiction. Why do you think that's happening? Well, this is also, I mean, we talked about how at the time that Fast Forward was conceived, it was the first of its kind. Now we have Jonathan Strong's Eclipse, and George Mann's This Large Book of New Science Fiction. Uh, also, annual original science fiction anthologies that will come out. So it, um, this is a very, very good time for science fiction. You know, I, I was talking with Jonathan about this. In, in the short fiction category, he actually sees the prevalence of original anthologies as a reaction to the shrinking of the digest and not... Uh, not growth, but a, but a contraction and consolidation. A migration. Not, pardon? A migration. Or a migration, yes, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm still considering those words. We had this discussion last week, and I'm not sure whether I agree or not. In terms of uh, on the book side of things, you know, I have been saying for a while, and I firmly, firmly believe that science fiction is just coming into its own right now. I, um, we are living in a science fiction world, and that has never been more true than it's true at this point in time. Um, you know, I just I love pulling out my iPod and saying, "Look, every CD I've ever bought since 1985 is in this. It's 6,600 songs. That's science fiction. I mean, that's the the little pad they used to carry around on Star Trek: Next Generation back in the mid or early 90s." We're living in an era when, when technology is impacting our life to such a degree that you would have to be a hermit in a cave on top of a Himalayan mountain not to have an opinion or a reaction or an experience with technology. 
And if you were a hermit on a cave on top of a mountain, you could probably, uh, you could probably download it exactly. from Wi-Fi. Exactly. <laughs> so. so the literature that exists to explore humankind's relationship with their technology has never been more relevant than it is right now at this moment. And people who say, well, now that the, the, the future has happened, the science fiction done its job, I find asinine because the future is happening faster and faster all the time. The only way science fiction could cease to be relevant is if not only all progress stopped, but the notion of progress, the possibility of progress, was removed so that you had nothing to, to wonder about, hope for, long for, test, worry about, try out. It, you know, there's absolutely no way science fiction could lose its relevancy. Uh, I, th I think in part that's because w we live in a world that e even in the present, most people don't understand that the technology that they use every day. So we really do have this kind of uh, uh, foreign feel to, to the world around us. Exactly. And this is the literature of alienation. But we've also, I think, seen in the broader sense, um, we've seen just a lot more respect for science fiction in the mainstream in the last year, and, and for genre fiction in general. I mean, you can look at signposts like King getting the National Book Award, Susanna Clark being picked as Time Magazine's Book of the Year. Uh, in, in the media, you have Time, Rolling Stone, and Entertainment Weekly, all three proclaiming Battlestar Galactica the best drama period on television. You know, no, no, no qualifier on what kind of drama it is. Um, we've had the Pulitzer for Ray Bradbury and for McCarthy, uh, who's going to be on Oprah, even though they won't use the word science fiction there, it doesn't matter. We all know what it is. And there have just been so many, many, many. I, I see just in the press all the time, uh, a lot. In, 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 there was an article in USA Today called Science Fiction Gets Real about children of men and other, you know, quote, serious science fiction films that were on the horizon at the time. And the reviewer was, or the, the interviewer was, uh, took pains to distinguish science fiction from, quote, the escapism of Star Wars. And, and I just think that there's been a general uh, rise in the understanding of how science fiction can speak to our chaotic and turbulent and increasingly technological times on the part of the mainstream media and press in literally the last year. And it's only been good. It's taken us 30 years to recover from uh, the impact of Star Wars, which looks like science fiction and has rockets like science fiction, but is not in most ways a science fiction. Give me a time machine and I would wipe that movie out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's going to anger a lot of people. Actually, what I would do is I would go back and substitute a plot for what it has. Well, I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with the iconography of Star Wars. I, I, I weep when I go in the end and I see the... They have like a 12-book series techno manuals now. They're just gorgeous because it's all just ripped right out of ILM's computer and LucasArts computers and put right in in full color in the pages. And they have all the ships and the planets and the aliens and the costumes and the, all the tech. And it's so gorgeous. It's so gorgeous. And, and you look at that and go, all of this artistry, all these incredibly talented concept artists and designers and costumers and model makers and CGI model makers all in the service of such a completely bankrupt, idiotic narrative. Interesting, and I think uh, true. And what's nice is is that science fiction narratives in the in the media, as you pointed out, uh, Battlestar Galactica, are, are getting much more sophisticated, and, and people uh, are much more willing to engage with them on an adult level. Absolutely. Which, 
which I think will help the science fiction publishing business a lot because it, when I was talking to Tim Holman, he, he pointed out, and I think this is really true, that the majority of the media, movies, computer games, and television are almost all dominated by shows that are either out-and-out -out science fiction or incorporate science fiction themes as major plot threads. I, I, I was in Sam's the other day watching just the display they had of trying to get me to buy their new $3,000 flat-screen televisions, you know. And the, all of the films that they show to show you how good Blu-ray looks are all either science fiction or fantasy or historical epics. And I'm sitting there watching that, you know, watching scenes from Ultraviolet and The Matrix and, and The Incredibles and all being used to showcase their technology. And I realized that all of the films that we love, they're all genre films. Well, speaking of genre films and the future and the genre, future of the genre, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what we can look forward to for, from uh, Pyre next year? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I'm very excited about is we have a book. Well, well, first of all, we've got the, the follow-up to Joe Abercrombie's The Blade Itself, which is Before They Are Hanged. And uh, the title comes from a, a quote, Always forgive your enemies, but not before they are hanged. And it's, it's I think, even better than the first book. Uh, Joe is doing a very, very deliberate subversion of the fantasy genre in general and the Lord of the Rings in specific. And... His, his, I, I finished the third book in November, and it just left me feeling gutted. Um, it, 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 he's getting a lot of backhanded complimentary reviews that say, oh, this is a really fun thing to read while you're waiting on the next George R. R. Martin, but it's not as deep. You know, this is, this is great characters with great action, great battle scenes, with lots of humor, really fun book, but it's not as deep. As Steve Erickson or George R. R. Martin, and I think that those people, when they get to book three and see what he's been doing, when he goes back and takes you through everything you thought was what you thought it was, it wasn't, are going to have their jaws just drop to the ground and go, oh, uh, sorry, it actually is deep. In fact, it's a lot deeper and darker than we even realize. And a lot of what he does relies on subverting your expectations. I mean, he says, you know, you expect such and such a character to do such and such a thing because that's what such and such a character always does in fantasy and every fantasy you've read since you were a child what's not going to happen this time and, he, and he's up front about it and yet when it doesn't go the way that your subconscious has, has that you've been educated since birth to believe it's going to go it's such a brutal blow to the reader and, and Joe stands there and says I told you from day one this is what we were doing why didn't you believe me? I, I think it's just absolutely masterful. I think it's probably going to be one of my favorite fantasy series of all time. It's not my favorite. I, and, um, and then beyond that, we have a book from Theodore Judson. Do you remember uh, the author of Fitzpatrick's War? Yes, yes. Um, I remember uh, that book. Uh, the Martian General's Daughter. And it's uh, set uh, several thousand years from now in a world where a nanotech plague has rendered most machines useless. Uh, there are still computers, but they may sputter out on you at any moment. There are still aircraft, but they'll fall out of the sky constantly. And there is a very Roman empire centered in America that uh, has ruled the world. And the very wise um, Marcus Aurelius-like emperor dies, 
and leaves the empire to his very Nero Caligula-like child. And General Peter Black is a very loyal, very good soldier who's not a very deep man, not a very imaginative man, um, not a very clever man, but a, but a very good soldier and a very loyal man who serves the son out of loyalty to the father and has an illegitimate daughter named Justa that is the result of his one indiscretion that he keeps with him on the battlefield because his family doesn't want to have anything to do with her and his family doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. And uh, he tells everyone she's the child of a servant and he's embarrassed by her. And basically across the... It's her narrative. She, she tells the story of her father. And across several decades, he and she come to realize the depth and importance of their relationship. And it's just fantastic. I mean, it, it reads like an, an oral military history. Uh, it has tremendous battle scenes. And at the same time, you know, it's got a strong female lead. And it is just heartbreaking in the nature of his father-daughter relationship. So it's going to, you know, people who like... Bain, military SF are going to read it, and people and, and female authors who want strong female characters and want to get curled up at night and cry about how much they love their fathers are going to read it. And I just think it's going to be tremendous when it comes out. That sounds very interesting. Thank you. And then we've got the follow-up, finally, to David Edelman's InfoQuake, uh, multi-reel. We pitched, uh, we pitched InfoQuake as Dune meets the Wall Street Journal because the level of the world building was, was I think, on the, you know, we, we're pulling out Frank Herbert's name a lot in this conversation, but it was, it was Dune-esque in, the, in the, the sweep of his future history with his extensive appendices explaining how we got from there to here and everything involved and, and the way that he took uh, science fictional technologies that we've seen before, but he, he wove them all together into a coherent future that, uh, to quote to pull Paul Cornell back in, Paul Cornell read and said that he thought it was the most believable science fiction future he'd read in decades. Um, it actually reminds me of a lot of, of the way that Warren Ellis's Transmetropolitan comic book drew from so much to give you a New York City that you really believed would be New York City. It was neither dystopian nor utopian. It was everything in the kitchen sink at once, all woven into one, one convincing future history. Dave does that really, really well in InfoQuake. But in Multireal, if InfoQuake was Dune meets Wall Street Journal, Multireal is Boston Legal meets the Matrix. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. Um, I don't want to say too much about it. I don't want to spoil people who haven't read InfoQuake yet, but the, Info, but the Multireal technology, is, which is introduced in InfoQuake, uh, is explored in Multireal to some very Matrix-like uh, action sequences that occur in courtroom dramas with lots of sex. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, that sounds uh, like a lot of fun. I really enjoyed InfoQuake myself. I, and, and after I read it, I ended up talking to Faith Popcorn, you know, who's one of America's noted futurists. And she was right there with his kind of uh, virtual appearance technology. And, and she talked quite a bit. And this is somebody who's really is planning our future. Um, about having, you know, that in the future everybody's just going to hop in their virtual closet and go everywhere. And that's pretty much the technology that Edelman introduced in uh, InfoQuake. Well, it may have been you that was interviewing William Gibson. I mean, I, I, mean, I know you've interviewed him. I love that podcast. But I, he did a number of podcasts around that time, and I'm not sure which one my memory comes from. But in one of his interviews around Spook Country, he talks about the fact that he can't 
really envision the future of locative art. He said that you know he he knows it is the future, but when he tries to look beyond what he's writing about in Spook Country, he just hits a wall, and he can't imagine what the nth point of locative art is. But it's probably some city where 50% of the items around you are only present virtually. And I'm reading that going, yeah, it's David Lewis Edelman's InfoQuake. Right, and I was thinking too, and I almost asked him about both InfoQuake and uh, the Werner Vinge Rain- Rainbow's End, what both seem to like uh, take that same step into the beyond what he was talking about, which I thought was very interesting. Oh, I, I loved Spook Country. I thought... Uh, I'm fascinated by it. I, I sent Bill InfoQuake, but I'm sure he gets a million books. And I also don't think that he reads books. I think he throws them up in the air, and then the ones that hit his head on the way down inform the next thing he writes. That that appears to be... Uh, I think that's a good... Uh, uh, a good guess. He he he's a he's an intuitive guy, and that's why his stuff is so powerful. We've been speaking with Lou Anders. He's the publisher of Pyre Books, and we'll be speaking with you again, Lou. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Again, my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.